welcome to Dig Deep. Well, we are in the middle of a series on love. And here's the tricky thing about love. I love my husband and I love my kids, but I also love Mexican food. And I truly love cleared off countertops with all of my heart. So at this point in the series, I want us to take a step back a little bit and really define love. This whole series is based on John 13, 34, where Jesus says to his disciples, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And the question we're asking throughout this series is how then has he loved us? But it's important for us to really define what kind of love we are talking about. When Jesus commands us to love one another, the word for love there in the original Greek is agape, agape. Now, depending on which historian or linguist you ask, the ancient Greeks had between four and eight different words for love. And that makes sense. I mean, love is complicated and weird. And the way that we love our kids is obviously distinct from how we love our spouse, which is, of course, different from how we love our friends and our pets and our food. Although, as far as I understand, the Greeks didn't use any of their words for love to talk about their food. And there's probably something we should learn from that. But I don't know what other word to use. I just love chips and guacamole. But here's the thing. Jesus is using the word agape. C.S. Lewis uses agape in his book, The Four Loves, to describe what he believes is the highest level of love known to humanity. He describes it as a selfless love that is passionately committed to the well-being of others. And it's a love that is rooted in the relationship between God and mankind, first and foremost. This is a love that has everything to do with the character of the person giving it and nothing to do with the character of the person receiving it. I believe today is going to be a really important episode in this series because our passage today is John 13. So we are going to be looking at the context surrounding our foundational verse for this whole series. This is the setting. This is the scene where Jesus says to his disciples, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. So we're going to start in verse 1 of John chapter 13. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And the word here, again, is agape. Jesus had loved his disciples, and he loved them to the end. And he was about to show them the full extent of his love. Verse 2, the evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, this scene is a little bit hard for us to imagine since most of us live in a culture where we have not experienced a traditional foot washing. But foot washing was a custom in many ancient civilizations, especially civilizations where sandals were the primary footwear. And this was just common courtesy. If you were to come over to my house today, I would offer to take your coat and offer you something to drink. This was just a common courtesy, a custom of, among the Israelites. If you were a guest in someone's home, they would greet you at the door, greet you with a kiss, and offer you a bowl of water to wash your feet. Now, if the host that you were visiting was particularly wealthy, they would offer to have a servant wash your feet for you. But it's important to note that they wouldn't ask a Jewish servant to do that job because it would have been considered below his or her pay grade. 
they would only ask a Gentile servant to wash someone else's feet. And so this scene really is impossible for us to fully understand, but maybe the best picture that I can come up with is imagine your dream guest of honor, you know, your favorite author or celebrity. Imagine they come to visit you in your home. And then while they're there, they step into the bathroom, but before using it, they lean out and say, um, the toilet's a little bit grimy. Would you just hand me the toilet brush and I'm just going to clean it real quick? You would be so embarrassed. You would be mortified. And you definitely would not let them scrub your toilet. You would make them step aside and say, I'm so sorry. Let me just clean it real quick. And then you'll have a clean bathroom to use. Well, that picture doesn't even come close to what the disciples were feeling. For a rabbi to wash his disciples' feet was completely unheard of, completely inappropriate. And so I imagine they just sat there seemingly from the text in stony silence as Jesus washed and dried one disciple's feet after another. But then the silence was broken when he came to Peter. In verse 6, Jesus came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Peter is pointing out here what everyone in the room was surely thinking. This is totally inappropriate. Jesus, you are our teacher and our Lord. We wouldn't even allow a Jewish servant to wash our feet, but only a Gentile servant. This is just out of the question. And so we're going to camp out here for just a couple minutes because for us to understand what Jesus is teaching us about his love, we first need to understand what Peter is pointing out. Because Peter is willing to admit that there is a pecking order and that it's being violated. Bill Hybels explains the phenomenon of pecking order in his book, Descending into Greatness. And this is crazy, but it's true. If you take any 10 chickens and place them in a pen together and spread some chicken feed, you will see an incredible phenomenon take place. In some strange, mysterious chicken language, the chickens peck at each other to determine dominance. And within minutes, the pecking order is established. Chicken number one pecks at chicken number two, and chicken number two doesn't retaliate. But then chicken number two turns and pecks at chicken number three. And so on down the line to poor old chicken number 10 who gets pecked but doesn't get to peck anybody. And it must be kind of sad and weird to watch something like that. But what's probably even more sad and weird is that we do this as humans too. Here are just some red flag statements that you are subject to a pecking order mentality. Have you ever thought or said, man, someone really needs to put him in his place? Who does she think she is? Don't they know who I am? Well, I don't feel bad for her. She just got what she deserved. Or I don't really have time for that. That's below my pay grade. I'm not doing that. Another way you can identify this in your heart is just ask, do I use a different tone with my boss than I do with my coworkers? Why? Packing order. We don't even really need to think about it. When we walk into a room within minutes, we have figured out the pecking order and where we fall in it, and it starts to shape our behavior. Now, if you read through the Gospels, it's easy to see that the disciples seem to think and talk about pecking order a lot. One of the places that we see this is in Luke chapter 9, where in verse 46, the disciples are arguing over who would be the greatest. And this happens on several occasions. These guys are arguing over who's going to have the most power and authority in the coming kingdom. They wanted to know who was going to be Jesus' right-hand guy. 
And I read that and I'm probably unfairly critical of the disciples. I tend to think, are you guys kidding me? You are Jesus's disciples. Have you learned nothing? Why are you even thinking about who among you would be the greatest? But I recently read through Luke chapter 9 and tried to put myself in the disciples' shoes. And so I want to just quickly walk through the chain of events of that chapter. And I really want you to try your best to imagine how you would feel if you were one of the disciples. So we're going to start in verse 9 of Luke chapter 9. When Jesus had called the 12 together, and we should stop just right there. I mean, are you putting yourself in their shoes? You're one of the 12. You were hand-selected. You've been chosen to be a part of this special group. You're one of the 12. Going on in the verse, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and heal the sick. And so the disciples go out. They drive out demons and heal sick people. I mean, can you imagine what that must have felt like? I think it must have been something like what Peter Parker felt when he discovered he had these little spiky things in the tips of his fingers and he could climb the walls of buildings because he's Spider-Man. What they're experiencing is completely mind-blowing. This must have been exhilarating and exciting. I mean, can you imagine being able to walk into that hospital room of your dear friend and healing the cancer in the name of Jesus, embracing them, weeping together, and then going on to the next room and the next room? These disciples are having a powerful, life-changing, paradigm-shifting experience. When they return from that journey, Jesus takes them away for some quiet time together. But a crowd follows them, and Jesus performs an incredible miracle. He multiplies one little lunch into enough food to feed thousands and thousands of people. And each disciple is left with the tangible evidence in their hands. There's 12 baskets full of leftovers. The people are amazed. And then I imagine if I was one of the disciples, I would have what I call an entourage high. Yeah, the I'm with the band mentality. I'm one of the 12. Jesus pulls them aside again and says, okay, who do the crowd say that I am? And they say, oh, Jesus, there's a lot of theories floating around about who you are. And he says, who do you say I am? And Peter, again, speaks up excitedly and says, you are the Messiah. And in verse 23, then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Jesus is confirming what Peter has said. Yes, I am the Messiah. And yes, I am bringing a new kingdom. But Guys, it's a kingdom unlike anything you've ever seen. Get ready. A lot of what I am going to teach and embody and call you to is going to be counterintuitive, but it will be life-changing and it will be world-changing. Then we go to verse 28. It says, eight days after that, Jesus took Peter, John, and James with him up a mountain to pray. So I want you to imagine you're one of those three. You are already part of an exclusive group. You are given power and authority. And now you've been chosen for a special assignment. You're one of three. And maybe you know what that feels like. Maybe you've been invited on an exclusive business trip or to a special event, or you've been asked to be a part of a higher level meeting at your company. And you think, oh man, I must really be crushing it at my job. Now I want you to imagine you're one of the other nine at the base of the mountain. 
Or maybe you know what that feels like when somebody else gets pulled into that meeting or taken on that business trip. And you think, what's so special about him or her? But Jesus just takes three of his disciples up the mountain and they witness something miraculous. Jesus himself is transfigured. The appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Moses and Elijah show up in glorious splendor and they're all having a conversation. You guys, this is all still in the same chapter. This is all in Luke chapter 9. And then the four of them come down from the mountain the next day and they're met again by a large crowd. And a man in the crowd begs Jesus to heal his son from a demon and Jesus does it and the crowd is amazed. And Jesus says in verse 44, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And verse 45 says, but they did not understand what this meant. And then it's verse 46 where we read that an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. And I know Jesus has got to be frustrated with them, but I feel compassion for them. Because when I read the chapter that way, attempting to place myself in their shoes, you know, I get it. I realized I would probably do the exact same thing. They were experiencing momentum and excitement. There were special assignments being given. They were being given power and authority. And so they started looking at each other and thinking, okay, well, I mean, when this kingdom comes, who's really going to have the most power? Who's going to be in charge of who? Because I feel like I should be at the top. They wanted to figure out the pecking order. And now we return to John 13. Jesus is eating his last meal with his disciples. And he looks around the table and sees proud hearts and dirty feet. And he does the unthinkable. Jesus lowered himself to the lowest imaginable place in the pecking order. And he serves them and meets their needs. And when Peter understandably objects to this, Jesus answers him, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said, not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, He put on his clothes and returned to his place. The disciples wait, wondering what to make of what they've just experienced. And after Jesus sits down, he says to them, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. And I think this is a really important point here, because Jesus makes a point after washing their feet to affirm his authority over them. He says, you call me Lord with a capital L and teacher with a capital T and rightly so. That is who I am. And if I, your Lord and teacher, have served you, then you need to shift your perspective and serve one another. Jesus was embodying and showing them what he had been teaching them all along. Jesus doesn't say here that there shouldn't be any power or authority. Go back to Luke 9.9. Jesus gave them power and authority. He gave it to them. And listen, every room you walk into, you will immediately, subconsciously, try to figure out where you fit in the pecking order. And there will be rooms 
that you walk into where you have some power or some authority, some influence over others. And then there will be rooms that you walk into where you have zero power or authority. But Jesus reminds us right at the start of this passage in verse 3 that the Father had put all things under his power. Jesus is the top dog in all of the rooms. All of the rooms. The Father had put all things under his power. And he reinforces that truth in verse 13 where he says, You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. And now here he is preparing to leave them and he is embodying the lesson that he's been trying to teach them all along. And he says in verse 14, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And then it's later that same evening, sitting around that same table, that Jesus says the words that are our guiding words for this whole series. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And so when we ask, how then has he loved us? The answer is he humbled himself. And not just in his heart, not just in his attitude, but in his actions. He put on a servant's clothing. He lowered himself to the position of a servant. And then he did the servant's actual job. Jesus is saying, I am telling you that I want you to use any power, any authority, any influence you have to get down on your knees in humility and serve one another as an act of love. Last Friday, as I was preparing for this message, I was trying to think through the ways that I have fallen into this trap of of operating out of the pecking order, and some things came to mind, but I asked God, God, would you show me a way that I fall into this trap? That was Friday afternoon. On Saturday, I had the opportunity to participate in an all-day leadership event as part of a one-year leadership development class that I'm doing through our church. And throughout the day, we had several short coffee breaks. And it was in the middle of the session in the afternoon that I realized, oh, I have all of these emails that I really need to try to get to before I leave here at the end of the day. And so I told myself at the next coffee break, I am not going to socialize with anybody. I'm just going to sit here and plow through these emails. And so when that coffee break came, I got out my phone and started cranking out emails as fast as I could. And while I was working on those emails, a guy who's in my class came over and politely said, hey, Jess. And so I looked up from my phone and smiled and said, hey. And he went on to uh, say that his wife had heard me speak in an event last week. And we chatted for a few minutes and had a really nice little conversation. Now, I still had my phone in my hand with my email open. And eventually I explained oh man, I have been meaning to catch up on these emails every break and I keep forgetting, ha ha ha. And he said, oh, well, I'll let you get back to it then. Great, nice nice talking to you. And then I got back to my email. And it was a nice little conversation. And I didn't think about it again until Sunday morning, seemingly out of nowhere, but obviously not out of nowhere. The moment I opened my eyes, I had this crystal clear thought run through my mind. It was a simple, clear sentence. If he had been one of the faculty members, you wouldn't have kept your email open. And I sort of furrowed my brow and still blinking, waking up. But I knew immediately that it was true. And it was an answer to the prayer that I had prayed on Friday. Because if he had been one of the faculty, any one of the speakers for the day that had come up to talk to me, I would have closed my email 
and put my phone down and just finish my emailing another time. But because he was a fellow attendee, a peer of mine, I didn't treat him in the same way. And now some of you might think, okay, that's a little extreme, Jess. I mean, thankfully I wasn't mean or rude to him. I hope he didn't feel brushed off or slighted by me. But it is an opportunity for me to learn about my heart, to learn about the things that I do seemingly without any thought, to really consider the way that I talk to people, the way that I treat people, the way that I serve people around me. Jesus taught his disciples, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. And that kind of radical, humble service is at the heart of real love, agape love. Jesus is saying to us, I want you to serve those under your authority. I want you to serve your peers. And I want you to serve those in leadership over you, but not just to gain their favor, but out of love. I even want you to serve those who have hurt you. It's woven throughout this passage, but Judas was already in the process of betraying Jesus, and Jesus knew it. And Jesus washed his feet too. And in all of this, Jesus is showing us this love is unlike any other type of love you've ever experienced before. This love doesn't sneak up on you. You don't fall into this kind of love. This love isn't a feeling that ebbs and flows. This love isn't even dependent on the other person being lovable. In fact, Jesus is making it perfectly clear that when we were completely unlovable, he chose to love us. He poured out water into a bowl to wash feet, and then he poured out his blood in the humiliating death of a criminal to love us back to the Father. And then he says, now you go and love other people the same way. And so as we close, I want to encourage you to ask God two questions today. The first is the same question that I asked God on Friday. I want you to ask him to illuminate a conversation or a relationship and show you how he wants you to treat people differently. And then I want you to ask, how can I practically, humbly serve someone in love today? And that may be as simple as just listening more intently or not rushing off to the next thing. Or maybe it's offering to do a menial task that no one wants to do. Or maybe it's doing that task without anybody even knowing. During the last break of that leadership event on Saturday, I went to the back of the room to grab a cup of coffee only to find that the pots were completely empty. One of the founding faculty members and key leaders of this whole program, a man named Dave Kruger, a man who he and his wife are people I just have immense respect for, their whole family. I've looked up to their family for a long time. He was standing nearby and he said, oh, they probably still have some in the kitchen. And I was a tiny bit embarrassed, but I said, oh no, it's fine, I'm good. A few minutes later, just as the final session was about to start, we were asked to take our seats, and he snuck through the door at the last minute and handed me a hot cup of coffee that he had gone and retrieved from the kitchen for me. And it shouldn't have surprised me, because at the very beginning of this year of leadership development, he taught on this same passage, John 13, and he implored us as leaders to put Jesus' words at the very center of our leadership. He told us that then and there, we were being officially inducted into what he refers to as the order of the towel. Jesus, the one who has all the power and all the authority, humbled himself and served us in love. And then he says, as I have loved you, 
so you must love one another. He wants love like that to define us as his followers. Because even though it's kind of counterintuitive and strange, Jesus shows us that love like that changes the world. It changes the nature of relationships. It shakes things up in a way that can bring new life and healing and freedom. That is agape love, love that originated in him, given to us that he then calls us to give to everyone around us. In our next episode, we're going to get an even deeper look into that kind of love, agape love, what it really is and how it should completely revolutionize the way we think about love and our relationships. So I hope that you'll come back and join me then. And until then, remember to dig deep.